to the prophet Zechariah. Once again, we return this morning. We'll pick up where we left off at chapter 12. Zechariah 12. This is at page 798 in your pew Bible. We come this morning to a new section of the prophet Zechariah, beginning at chapter 12, verse 1, as indicated by the opening phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. This is also the final section of the uh, book marked in our Bibles as chapters 12 through 14. If that phrase sounds familiar, the burden of the word of the Lord, why, it certainly should. We encountered the same phrase in 9 verse 1, and we said there that the phrase often introduces an ominous prophecy. We'll see that this is certainly the case in this the last oracle as well. There's plenty of doom and gloom in these last three chapters of Zechariah. But it is not all darkness. As a matter of fact, Zechariah's prophecy here with which he ends, he ends white hot with the light and the fire that God spreads through the whole world and that through the instrument of his church, just as Deacon McPherson has just prayed. But it is going to require some hard work from us, dear flock, as we make our way through this oracle, this prophecy that spans these last three chapters, if for no other reason than that, as one commentator puts it, with the opening of chapter 12, the pace begins to quicken. It's going to feel like Zechariah is throwing a whole lot at us in rapid fire. You'll feel like you're trying to sip from a fire hose. So let me assure you that though we're going to be reading the uh, many verses, chapter 12, verse 1 through 13, verse 6, because I want you to feel the pulse of this prophecy, we're going to focus our thoughts this morning on the first nine verses of chapter 12 after we read the longer passage, now in the confidence that prayer has already been uh, ably made for the Lord's help. Zechariah 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves. 
and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah. First, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon on the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. When I was in my teens, my retired grandparents were missionaries, not international missionaries, but domestic nomads, made their way from one part of the country to another in their RV, along with several others, reaching out to various communities all around America through projects that they would do, usually in conjunction with one church or another, including, by the way, even PCA churches, though at the time I hadn't a clue what PCA even stood for, uh, wasn't even sure whether Presbyterians weren't actually possibly aliens from another planet. Uh, but uh, anyway, Grandma and Grandpa sent me pictures from time to time of the places where they were working. And one particular picture sticks in my mind, and that's of the two of them standing in front, somewhere in front of the Grand Teton Mountain Range 
in Wyoming. There they are standing together, arm in arm, smiling, sunglasses. And in the, in the background are the mountains, jutting majestically up into the sky. But of course, to the camera, it looks like a flat mountain range. You know, it just looks like a, a, a bunch of mountains uh, side by side. Varying heights, of course. It is when one goes to hike in the Grand Teton National Park on foot that suddenly those mountains don't look so flat anymore. In fact, you find out that nearly 1,300 square miles of uh, land are included in that park, and you can hike miles and miles before you make it from one mountain peak to another, though they view that from a distance they look so close. Well, that's what we have to keep in mind as we read the prophets, and Zechariah in particular this morning. Zechariah <laughs> was standing in the 6th century B.C., looking ahead, as it were, through his telescope at the mountain range of redemptive history. And from where he was standing, the events of the future seemed, well, quite flat and compact. Little did Zechariah understand what distance separated the peaks that he prophesied while standing and looking at a distance from the 6th century. We do not read that Zechariah understood, for example, that the Messiah would come not just once, but again. Unbeknownst to Zechariah and his contemporaries, he and they were actually prophesying a first and a second coming, collapsed as if it were a single event, a single vision of the future. That all of this would reach its consummation at the second advent of the Messiah was part of the picture not disclosed, the dimension of the picture not disclosed until, actually, until the Lord arrived on the scene incarnate in the world. As we're reading this text and as we made our way into the last oracle of uh, Zechariah and will in the weeks to come, Lord willing... If it's not already occurred to you, you will certainly notice that much of what Zechariah had to say that we've just read has actually already been fulfilled. Fulfilled, I say, in the life and the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. That's why this part of Zechariah figures actually so largely in the gospel accounts of the Lord's passion. This is cited more often than any other passage of the Old Testament in the gospel's account of the last week of our Lord's life. So think of this, of his ministry that is. So think of this, the, the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Judas's 30 pieces of silver, the return of the money to the temple authorities who gave it then to the potter. We've already seen those, haven't we, in Zechariah and know that they are fulfilled by the branch that Zechariah has talked about, the king, the priest that Zechariah has foretold. In the days ahead, we'll see that this piercing of Jesus on the cross, as we've already just read this morning, and the sudden flow of blood and water that came from that wound, the mourning, the wailing over his death, the striking of the shepherd that we will come to in this oracle, the removal of the sin of the people in a single day. We'll even get, and I've already seen from Zechariah, 
how the Messiah is identified with God and yet distinguished from God. Remarkable. Much of it Zechariah did not understand. I'm convinced, at least not fully. And to be frank about it, let's be frank and humble about it, many of the things we encounter in these chapters, we don't understand. Even though the church has been hiking in this park, as it were, between these mountains for some 2,000 years now since Jesus' ascension into heaven. Much remained in Zechariah's day to be filled out and explained, and humility requires us to confess that there still remains much to be filled out, much to be explained, much to be understood. Only the most arrogant among us would dare to claim that he has fully plumbed, explained, understood, or systematized all that the Scripture has to say about the future. Sure, we might wish that we had something more specific here, right? Something literal from the prophets, from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Some some literalistic, clear-cut, you know, (coughs) propositional, the way we like it, predictions of the coming Messiah and his royal career. We sometimes wish the Old Testament prophets would have just said simply and plainly that he would be born of a man named Herod, you know, born when a man named Herod was king of Judea, that he would die on a cross at the hands of the Romans of all people, that when a man named Tiberius ruled Rome, that that he would rise again on the third day, that he would ascend into heaven from which he would return in due time, that he would bestow his spirit upon the church to enable her to take the message of his saving grace and love to the four corners of the world, creating a church of Gentiles and Jews together. Why couldn't they just put it that way? Now, you know, you know that the events of Jesus' life, of his death, of his resurrection, and so on, they are clearly taught in the Old Testament. But you also know that they're presented in a particular way, a much more general way, and with the pictures and the images and the metaphors of the prophecies that are expressed using figures of speech and categories from those prophets' day and time. For example, Zechariah speaks in these verses about Jerusalem and Judah as the place and the people central to this prophecy, to his prophecies. This has led some interpreters to insist that everything we've read this morning in those verses in chapter 12 and into 13 and so on, uh, in this oracle, that all of this must of necessity be fulfilled literally in the future, in the city of Jerusalem, and therefore actually of necessity in the future. Indeed, I understand from uh, speaking to legislators that uh, some of our senators and our representatives in Washington who form their Capitol Hill legislation concerning Israel and Jerusalem actually, because of their commitment to whatever degree to the Bible, based in part, if not in large part, on that very conviction. But what is Jerusalem and Judah in Zechariah's day? What are they? What are these? They're the church. They're the church. The same church 
that continues today. The same single church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the faces and the names have changed. Of course they have. The complexion of the church has morphed from what I expect was a strong Levantine East Mediterranean phenotype, the tannish olive faces of the ancient Jews, to a mixture of white Europeans and black Africans and red Indians and yellow Asians. The geography has changed, too. It's no longer limited to Jerusalem. The church has spread to Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, to London, to Paris, to Perth, to Bangkok, to Atlanta, and Chicago. Yes, even Chicago. But Zechariah didn't know those places. He knew Jerusalem. And so when he wrote about the church, what's he going to write about? About Jerusalem. He wrote about Israel when writing about the church because in his day they were synonymous. He delivered his prophecies of the future concerning the church and God's saving work in terms of local geography. This is so important, my brothers and sisters, if we will understand prophecy aright. This is the interpretive key without which we necessarily misread huge portions of Scripture by insisting that these great, grand, sweeping works of God described by the prophets must take place literally in one relatively tiny city in a tiny country artificially carved out of Palestine by the United Nations in 1948. No, when the prophets speak of the future in terms of Jerusalem and Israel and Judah, They are writing of the church's future in terms that they knew, that they understood. And the New Testament makes that plain by calling the church in our epoch Israel. That is who you are, the Bible says. You are Israel. And speaking of Jerusalem as our mother, the writer of Hebrews tells us that as Christians in the church, where have we come? Where does Hebrews say that we've come? We've come to Mount Zion. As one scholar, John McKay, put it, puts it helpfully, the, prophets were promise, the prophecies were promises couched in the language that was meaningful to their first recipients in Old Testament times. As a sheer necessity of communication, terms had to be employed that they understood. And the continuity of God's purpose very readily enabled uh, the future reality to be pictured under what they then knew and were familiar with. But when it comes to the fulfillment of such promises in the New Testament age... There is no restriction to the entities that were previously employed to express them. Now, hopefully that was helpful. I know I'm belaboring this point. I know I am. But only because this is so important. This is so important for us to understand our Bibles properly, for us to take hold of all of the richness, not just of the last one quarter of your Bible, but the first three quarters of your Bibles, 
That, for better or worse, we call the Old Testament. Just consider what richness is here for us, for us, in the first nine verses of chapter 12. Looking ahead, through his prophetic telescope now, Zechariah looking at the mountain range ahead of him. Zechariah sees what will become of Israel, that is, we've established, I think, his church, Christ's church. He asks, will she be lost? Is the future of the church uncertain? Is it in jeopardy? Now, please understand, get into Zechariah's head here a little bit, that in his day, that's exactly how things might and I think must have felt. The church was a tiny little minority band, most of whom remained in exile in the land of their exile, some of whom had returned to Jerusalem and Judea, but remained all the while under the powerful shadow and control and domination of another empire. What is to become of the church? That's the question. Will her enemies finally prevail and quash her, destroy her completely? Zechariah looks through his telescope at the mountain range before him, and yes, he sees one who is pierced. Indeed, to the baffled minds of his hearers, he sees that the one who is going to be pierced is God. He sees that God's shepherd is going to be struck. He sees trials and tribulations for the church, but he also sees triumph and salvation. Enemies pressing hard, yes, but being beaten back as the church grows in strength to the ultimate destruction of her enemies. In other words, he sees us. He sees us in the day in which we're living now. On that day, on that day, on that day, Zechariah says, that's the pulse of the passage that I wanted you to feel. Sixteen times we'll read that expression in this oracle, but what we ask is that day. Well, several prophets used very similar phrases in different forms, speaking of the coming of God in power to set affairs right upon the earth, both in judgment and in salvation. Amos uses the term to describe the Assyrian conquest of Samaria, but we don't imagine that that is the only thing that is in view. Joel speaks of the day of the Lord when the Spirit will be poured out at Pentecost. So at various times that expression has been used to describe various works of the Lord. Zechariah seems to be describing a wide complex here of expectations under the heading in that day that range all the way from the cross to the final denouement or the final judgment. And if we continue consistently now with our interpretation and application of Zechariah's prophecies that we've given thus far in terms of spiritual fulfillment in the church, then we see that this last oracle also applies to us in our day. I'll pull out the big guns. John Calvin certainly took that view. I'm being a little bit facetious. But uh, Calvin understood that Zechariah was speaking about what the church was experiencing in his day. This oracle speaks of 
armed forces arraying themselves against Jerusalem. And it was literally the case, wasn't it, that the evangelicals of the Reformation faced military invasion from far stronger powers who sought to suppress the gospel. Here is Calvin. We see how Satan raises up great forces. We see how the whole world conspires against the church to prevent the increase or progress of the kingdom of Christ so that we are ready to faint and become wholly dejected. Let us remember, however boldly may multiplied adversaries resist Christ in the work of building a spiritual temple to God the Father, yet all their efforts will be in vain. From whence this Calvin's confidence comes? Well, from Zechariah. Like Calvin, we're reading about ourselves in Zechariah, about ourselves and about our enemies, the enemies of the church today. What about ourselves? What about our enemies? Well, let's start with our enemies, those who set themselves against the church to fight. In verses 2 through 6, we see the world coming and advancing in opposition to destroy God's city. But what is this? It is not the church that is destroyed or comes to ruin. It is they who come to ruin. They are intoxicated, they're injured, and they're rendered insane. Look, they're intoxicated, verse 2. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Now, what a scene. What a scene, writes one commentator. A huge bowl of wine. Several men, representatives of Syria and Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia and Phoenicia, crowding around that great bowl and pressing their lips to it. Their thirst to gulp down Israel. But strange to say, one after another steps back, reels, and staggers as a drunkard, for God has made this to be a bowl of reeling. They are rendered impotent by the wine of the wrath of God and stagger about like drunken fools while the city of God stands undefeated. They're intoxicated, they're injured. Verse 3, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. How many dictators, how many uh, enemies of the church finding her an impediment to their plans have tried so hard to extract her like a stone from a farmer's field only to find themselves injured in the process. And ultimately, all of them. Intoxicated, injured, even rendered insane in the middle of verse 3. All the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open 
We remember those eyes, don't we, from earlier in the oracles of Zechariah, those eyes of the Lord that are on the whole earth, but particularly on his church, the apple of his eye. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Now, of course, we're quick to remind ourselves, these are metaphors, right? These are metaphors, pictures of the way that God confounds his enemies. He might have chosen others. He might have described their defeat in terms of turning their ships away. Remember how during the Protestant Reformation, how the Reformation was gravely threatened by armed invasion? I already mentioned Calvin, but you might also remember from your history when the great Spanish Armada sought to invade and crush Protestant England during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Spain was proudly Roman Catholic, and England boldly had established its reformation with the recovery of God's word. The Armada launched in 1588 with 130 large and powerful ships staffed with 7,000 sailors and 17,000 soldiers. The English Navy was dwarfed with their 90 mostly small vessels. The battle raged for days, but all would have been lost were it not for a sudden and unexpected storm that churned the English Channel and drove the Spanish ships into the North Sea where their fleet was utterly destroyed. This was the phrase that they used in England. God breathed. God breathed, or God blew, and they were scattered. Elizabeth had it put right on a coin. Those who set themselves against God's church may seem to prevail for a time. But how many times, dear flock, have we not seen that the harder they persecute, the more the church grows? And that ancient saying has proved true that the, sea, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Dear flock, we need not fear the world. We need not fear the world. The church growth gurus are telling us that we, if the church is going to survive, we've got to conform her to the world. We've got to take on the world's styles. We've got to look like the world and sound like the world. We have to join our expectations to that of the world. Our convictions conformed to the world or the church will be brushed aside. But the church, Zechariah informs us, is a rock that's not easily moved because God is in her. We say to ourselves, we sing to ourselves in this house of worship even, verse 5, our God, the Lord of hosts, is our strength, which causes our eyes very quickly to turn from those enemies, doesn't it, when they're fixed Completely on him. Those are our enemies. Let's think about ourselves. If our enemies are intoxicated and injured and rendered insane, even impotent, in Zechariah's imagery, then we, the church, are pyros. 
and protected and privileged. Yes, you heard me. We are pyros. I've loved being a pyro since I was a little kid, so I especially enjoy this. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and the left all the surrounding peoples, while the Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Now, you know exactly what happens, don't you? If you walk through a field of dried sheaves, of wheat or, or of whatever at harvest time with a torch. You got a pretty good idea what's going to happen, right? Debbie's brother and her cousin got to find this out as children playing with matches out in the field that such an endeavor ends up with the police and the fire department showing up to try to fight back an entire field fire. Uh, God's word is spreading through the world like fire. And the instrument for that advancement is, brace yourselves, you, the church. God, give us more blazing Christians. God, set us ablaze that we may set the world ablaze. Remember Ridley and Latimer, the martyrs featured on the front cover of our church directory a few years ago? Back to the English Reformation we turn and remember another kind of blaze, different from the one that devoured the Spanish fleet. This blaze was ignited by the flaming deaths of those faithful leaders who went to the stake during the days of persecution under Bloody Mary, Bloody Queen Mary. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, those courageous preachers of the gospel, had their faith put to the test in the flames. And as they were being bound to the stakes that would be the place of their fiery deaths, Latimer said to his friend, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle as by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put We must no less than Latimer and Ridley be flames, candles, lighting and spreading the word of God in the world that would consume those on our right and on our left. Likewise, you and I must be pyros, in other words. And parents, you'll have to explain that to your children. <clears throat> Second, We are protected. Verse 8, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. The feeblest among them, the weakest shall be like David, and the house of David be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. You hear a passage like this, you hear commands like this, like we heard last week, and you, you think... I'm weak. I am so weak and small. What could possibly be made of this, of me? But here's our promise. You, the weakest, the feeblest, shall be like David, like the man after God's own heart. How can it be? We'll hear more about God's grace in the day to come. 
from Zechariah, Lord willing, but here it is. It's by God's protection, and it's by God's grace at work in you. And therefore, to borrow a phrase from the late Francis Schaeffer, in the church of Jesus Christ, there are no little people. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are in this church, and in the church worldwide, there are no little people. That's what Zechariah is saying to you. You become like David, heir of the covenant promises, kings and priests. That's what you are. I'm always at pains to remind you in this house, right, who you are. You are kings. You are priests. That's what the Bible calls you. Peter calls us that. Why? To serve our God and declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Children, let me put it in your terms. You are kings and queens in Narnia. There you have it. You are kings and queens in God's kingdom. Now act that way. Third, what a privilege. What a privilege to be inhabitants of the church of God. What a glorious thing this is. What a glorious thing it will be when the church militant finally and fully becomes the church triumphant. It's coming, dear flock. It it is coming, and it's coming sooner than you imagine. The church and the gospel's advancement are unstoppable because God is unstoppable. And we are on the Lord's side. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts. Amen.